Welcome to another episode of IGN Unfiltered. It is our monthly interview show where I sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the video game industry. I am extremely flattered and pleased today to be joined by Jason Rubin. Excited uh, Jason, to be here. You have had yourself one heck of a career uh, at, at a still a very young age. You've been around for 30 years already. That's right. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're only in your mid-40s. So you've been, you've been working in the video game business most of your life. Uh, this is my life. It games, is your life. Games are my life. Yeah. Uh, you co-founded Naughty Dog. We're going right. to talk about that. You were at the helm of THQ during a uh, very sort of newsworthy time, let's call yep. it, in, in their yep. history. And now uh, you're the uh, head of content at Oculus. Right. VR Enjoying scene, VR. So. Seeing VR. Seeing the game industry get to where I, we had always wanted it to get yeah. when we started 30 years ago. Yeah, and you're, you've just launched the... Well, you've, you've, the company's just launched the Oculus Touch controllers, which yep, are just at a... Add a huge dimension to to the uh, Oculus VR experience. So, yep. but as always with this show, I like to start off. It's the origin story because uh, that's I, I'm I'm fascinated by where a person like like you gets their start from and where things come from. And in your case, uh, your the first game that you made was called Math Jam, and you were 14 years old at the that's time. That's right. What inspires you at 14 to instead of just sitting around playing? Uh, a computer game or, or Atari, Atari or something to be like, hey, I want to make something. Yeah. I, I've told this story a lot of times, so we'll start. I apologize if people have heard <laughs> no this. Worries. but I walked out of Star Wars at seven years old, which would have been 77 yeah. uh, when it came out, and really wanted to create universes and be like George Lucas. That yeah. was my dream, right? And video cameras were incredibly expensive at sure. that time. Movie cameras were unwieldy for what would have been a 9, 10-year-old. Like, there was no way this was going to happen, right? I simply wasn't getting into film. If I lived in Hollywood, perhaps I lived in Gainesville, Florida, in the middle of nowhere. There was no way that I was going to be able to do that. Uh, over time, I did things. I made animation in my school, little things, and eventually convinced my father to get me uh, an Apple II, ostensibly for homework. Right. That was the that was the cover. But the goal was immediately, I'm going to build worlds, I'm going to build games, I'm going to make uh, universes. Um, happened to be going to school at the time uh, on weekends. Uh, it was a religious school, and Andy Gavin, who became my partner, was also in this school, and neither of us cared about what we were being forced to, to right. learn. What we cared about was computers. So we would sit in the back of the class and we would talk about programming. And I was experimenting in a lot of things. I made... Uh, short little animations using a sprite engine. Uh, I made little games, but I wasn't very good at a, as a programmer. Uh, and also decided at one point, Andy and I, that we would help a friend who was at, at teaching uh, kids that had problem uh, problems learning math, challenges learning math, yeah. um, make a math tutor for them. Cool. Who knows? I was 13, 14 years old. Like this got into my head. So we made this piece of software called Math Jam, where you know you added and you either got it right or wrong. And we took it to the school, and they're like, this is amazing. The kids love it. We're act- they're actually learning math. So if you guys could just go get approval from a couple of psychiatrists, take it to the school board and get it voted on. And I'm 14 years old. Yeah, like, and my father's like, I'm not helping you. with. <laughs> Why bother with this? So that's how we got into games, because you huh. don't need permission to do it. Right. So Andy and I set out to do things, basically, that were interesting to us, but decided to make games. I ended up... In a weekend, putting something together called Ski Craze, which was a terrible skiing game. I watched uh, it on YouTube. It's, uh, it looked very difficult. 85. Trying it to was, get down the slope and press the games were keys at the right time. Oh, yeah. game, gamers were tough. <laughs> like, you killed them. You made them start over. You, yeah. didn't, you didn't coddle them through like you do these days. <laughs> and uh, long story short, as you went down the hill, it got slower and slower because I was a horrible programmer. <laughs> Took it to Andy. He made it better. 
We became Jam Software. What now? But Jam actually was was uh, stood for name initials, right? Well, we needed to make this game. We needed a piece of software that was 120 bucks. I didn't have 120 bucks. Right, and didn't have 120 age, bucks. Yeah. Mike, Mike had 120 <laughs> the bucks. M in Jam. The M, Jason, Andy, Mike. <laughs> so we became Jam Software. It wasn't very long until we realized Mike had 120 bucks. And that was, he's a great person, but wasn't contributing to the games, bought Mike Your earliest out, investor. Became Jason and Andy's Magic, went as Jason and Andy's Magic for a couple years, and then when we signed a deal with EA, EA said, listen, we did a trademark search on your name. Turns out there's a company in Australia called Jam Software. You need a new name. You got 24 <laughs> hours because we're signing this contract. Wow. And so Andy and I came up with Naughty Dog. Neither of us remembers exactly how we did. We both had dogs. We both loved dogs. They, but they were, they weren't, were they not naughty dogs? They were nice dogs? All dogs are naughty dogs. <laughs> I remember uh, sitting across from Chip Hawkins, who had formed EA. Yeah, the co-founder of EA. amazing. And he said, love the game, love you too, hate the name. The name's terrible. No one's going <laughs> to like a name like Naughty Dog. It, electronic Arts, Interplay, Microprose. Right, Take all... two words, jam them together. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's why we want Naughty Dog, because pretty much all of those sound the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> and we became Naughty Dog, and Naughty Dog is still a storied name, and people remember the name. Was uh, thinking back for a second. Is Math Jam the first piece of edutainment? Are you one oh, of the pioneers? It, could, of it couldn't be. I <laughs> no, it couldn't be. No, the Apple II came out. Education came out immediately. Yeah. I'm sure before Apple II, there were other computers. Education now with VR. Education is such an is, as soon as you have a new medium that speaks to children. Education is an obvious venue for it, and we're heavily in it with VR. As soon as a computer existed, people were educating with it. So I, absolutely, we were not the first. Uh, so 19, if I have the dates here right, you formed uh, Naughty Dog uh, in 86 with Andy, as well, or when it, when it became Naughty Dog. Uh, yeah, we did a name change, but we were already incorporated. So Naughty Dog officially goes back to 84, 85. Got it. Okay. Uh, and, so, and that's right as Nintendo is... is mainstreaming their console in America. So, right. you know, it, it's all been, really been just kind of homebrew, you know, computer, computer right. gaming stuff, and then here comes Nintendo. Uh, did, as, as you're getting started, does Nintendo influence you in any way? Or, oh, heavily. And, heavily. Andy and I played the NES back, like, just, we were gamers. I mean, that, yeah. Fundamentally, the reason we were in the game business is we were gamers. To this day, I'm a gamer. We, we would play everything together. And the thing was, two, 14, 15, 16, whatever we were at the time, year olds, couldn't just call up Kyoto and right. say, hey, we want to develop for, your, for the NES. You had to be a developer of note, and even then it was mostly Japanese developers. The, the PC, the personal computer as opposed to the you know, PC PC, the PC was the place where you could do what you wanted to do, yeah. so, as, as it is today. So that's why we were PC developers. We didn't switch until... Uh, 89, maybe, was when we started working on console. Yeah, you, uh, there's an interesting story about you on, uh, about sort of running into Trip Hawkins and, and there's a, a and the Big Gordon. Yes. Yeah. And you end up, uh, selling a game called Keith the Thief, a role playing game, which I also looked up on YouTube. Very sort of cool, sort of traditional Western style yeah. computer role playing game. Uh, that's, that's in, when you're in college. So, so that, that game, was not on console, but we were working on that game. For, we cold called EA. We sold a couple of games that had like, you know, I think we sold 10,000 units of the right. second one we did when we were at 16, uh, Dream Zone. And so we cold called EA's front desk and we said, hey, we want to develop games for you. And they said, well, let us put you through to a producer because EA was small at the time. Yeah, at the time. So I mean, we get a producer on the line. West. He's like, what, we, what did you do? 
Well, we did Dream Zone. Oh, I love that game. <laughs> of the 10,000 people, this producer is one of the people that plays it. Takes. We totally will work with you. How much do you need to do your next game? And I look at $16,000. Okay, okay. done. <laughs> and so we're making a game called Keith the Thief. We go over budget. It was $48,000 still. $48,000 to EA. It's just not a big budget. So we're out talking about Keith the Thief. And Andy is walking through with me through EA's offices. And he points at a silver box. And he says, what, what the hell is that? That looks like a Genesis, but it's not a Genesis. It was a reverse-engineered Genesis. And EA had a strategy of reverse engineering. They were going to put out their own cartridges without paying Sega. Right. And this is a big part of EA's success in the long run because they didn't have to pay eventually full cartridge fees on what they were doing because they had this reverse engineering. It was genius. Yeah. But at the time, it was top secret. So, bing, trip, you guys didn't see that. Well, we want to work on that. Okay, bring in the contracts, get them under NDA, they can work on that. And so we made nice Rings of Power. Un- unintentional blackmail yeah. on your part. We made, exactly. <laughs> I, this is, I think 17, 18 years old. So there's no, it, was, it was totally unintentional. And that became Rings of Power, which was one of the first titles greenlit for Genesis. Not one of the first titles launched because it took us three years to make. It was, it was huge. So uh, i I, I got to stop you right there and, and ask about your parents at this point. I, I don't know what, what kind of parents you had because you're, you're wanting to make games. You're, you're starting at making games at 14. You're making money making games by cold calling EA and getting contracts at 17, 18. Where are your parents in all this and what do they think? Well, I wasn't a bad child, but I'm sure I'm not the easiest child. And this was not the worst of the things I was doing with my life. So I think they were, they were looking at this like, eh, it keeps him busy. He's in his room. He's not causing trouble. Great. Uh, Andy and my father both are attorneys. So a lot of our early success was the fact that we actually had somebody looking at contracts. Interesting. Um, they also had negotiated contracts and all the other things. So in, inherently, we had that advantage. They were also supportive. Like both That's of great. our parents, um, incredibly supportive. Not consistently pushing us. Uh, there was a moment where my parents thought it wasn't a good career for me to go into, and they started taking away my monitor cables to keep me from, <laughs> like, that was how they were making And there was a time when Andy's father uh, said, you're an MIT, uh, you're getting a, a, a master's degree in artificial intelligence, you're about to leave and not get your PhD to start working on games. This is a bad idea. Right. Like, this is just a bad idea. Why are you doing this? Years later, at Andy's wedding, his father came over to me. He's a fantastic man. He had had, like everybody else, a, you know, a decent amount to drink. And he said, let me tell you something. That was the worst fatherly advice I ever gave. Thank God he didn't listen. Good for you both. So we had incredibly supportive That's supportive great. Parents. Especially back then. I mean, you know, games just weren't nearly as accepted as they are now. No, I have to think not a, at all. A parent thinks... You know, that's, that's, that's a waste of time. Complete what, waste what of are you time. Doing? I could have been a lawyer like my father. I right. could have been a doctor. Nobody understood video games. Andy and I were always saying this is going to become the biggest entertainment forum on the planet. Eventually, it's going to take on TV and movies. People would laugh at us. Here we are today. It's taking on <laughs> TV and laugh. movies, right, uh, with VR and real-time engines. The game engine is going to power the future. Uh, but back then, yeah, absolutely. It was a cute thing that we did. Um, Look, a lot of people did cute things in the 70s. We were in a fantastic time because the world was going from you basically had few options and you kind of lived your life like your parents did, right? right? And you often were named for doing what your parents did. If you're a Cooper, (laughs) you made barrels and you were the Cooper's son or whatever. You were the son of the Cooper, the barrel maker. In the 70s and 60s, all of that started breaking apart. Technology started happening. Uh, I, I met somebody, a pro skateboarder, many years later, and he was like, my parents thought I was an idiot. I was skateboarding. And he's a multimillionaire, and he made a career yeah. out of it. Yeah. The world became a different place in the 70s and 80s, and I, I think we were lucky to get swept up in some of that. 
Did uh, you mention Andy at MIT? You were enrolled at the University of Michigan. Yeah, I wasn't. Did you smart. finish? I did. You did I got finish. My degree. So good for you, because because that's I, I can't imagine the the sirens call of you know money for me a and and a, the this being as real as it gets and then but you're trying to like well do I finish and get that degree or do I I just- did it for my parents I have never taken that degree out I don't know where it is to this day it's it, you know Annie and I were make as you say making money and it was our day job and yeah. class was my other pastime that <laughs> I kind of job. sometimes went to. Uh, I did get a degree. Good for you. I, I don't know that I needed that degree, but I did get it. Yeah. Economics. Not, so not even anything in tech. Well, there you go. You're, 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 I hope your parents know that uh, you did that. You oh, they do. They the appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, they appreciate it. <laughs> uh, so later you end up getting connected with Universal Studios, Universal Interactive starting a game division. Uh, they sign you to a three-game deal at that point, if my research is correct, and you move to L.A. at mm-hmm. that point. So had you been in Florida the whole time from where you grew up? Although, no, I guess at that in point we were in D.C. D- I okay. moved from Florida to D.C. for junior high and high, and that's where I met Andy. Every, got everything really okay. got going there. Florida was where I was trying to, and it was an elementary school, right? Yeah. But everything really happened in the D.C. area, Washington and, or, or Potomac, Maryland, and McLean, Virginia. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot. So you get out to I L.A. Cold, Universal so. gets yes, you out to L.A. Right. Uh, and there you meet Mark Cerny. Right. And that's when we get to where, yes. where everyone, the modern, the exactly. modern Ruben story begins right. with uh, Crash Bandicoot. So where does the idea for Crash Bandicoot come from? So Andy and I had left the game industry because cartridges ruined it, we thought. They were too expensive. They were $20 a cartridge for manufacture. Right. And we had made Rings of Power. It was incredibly expensive. EA sold out of it in three weeks, called us up and said, congratulations, you sold out. We're not printing anymore. Why aren't you printing anymore? We can only print so many cartridges. And there's this other game called Madden we put out at the same time. <laughs> it's kind of doing okay, so we're going to go all Madden because it doesn't make sense to split the... You know, split the manufacturer. Yeah. So we're like, great, we sold out a game and we're not making any money. We're out of this. The industry's too much. It's like the worst, the worst it, version the worst of success thing ever. Exactly. So we take some time off and Trip Hawkins again calls up and says, listen, I've started this thing called 3DO. CDs, they're less than a buck. Yeah. And unbelievable amounts of memory and everything else. Uh, also 3D, not 2D system, 3D, early 3D system. Um, take a shot at it. So we created a game called Way of the Warrior, which was an absolute ripoff of Mortal Kombat. I mean, down to the point where we'd go to a pizza parlor and take photos of it as we were playing. I've since uh, apologized to Boone. I was just going to ask uh, you yeah, about I, that. I, yeah. I, I, he's like, look, we all step on each other's shoulders. Um, and w- we put it out on a system that didn't have a fighting game. And everybody else was looking at the CD-ROM, and they were making these weird multimedia things with horrible acting. Think the worst, the yeah, absolute fighter, worst. Yeah, exactly. Play fighter, those kinds of Horrible. So we had a real game, and Universal at the time had decided that getting into the game business might be a good idea. So they had uh, a gentleman named Skip Paul that was out looking for ideas, and he, they had a relationship with Masushta and Panasonic, and long story short, he's like, why don't you come to Universal, work on the back lot where they make movies, uh, make video games? And if, you know, Andy and I were like, that sounds awesome. Yes. Well, what game do you want to make? I don't know. We'll think about it as we drive cross-country, because at that time we were in Boston. That was where Andy was going to MIT. Yeah, MIT. And so we took a you know, 36, 40-hour drive across country, and somewhere along the way we decided, you know, there, there's no character action game for the PlayStation. Sony's announced hardware. It uh, worked pretty well for us making a fighting game on a system without a fighting game. Right. Let's make Mario. 
And of course, this is two kids that had never really yeah, had that much success, but Universal, right? So Universal will help us. And sheerly out of luck, we walk in and they've hired Mark Cerny, who worked on the Sonic series. So all of a sudden, we have this massive amount of experience and brilliance. Yes. And resources from Universal and the blind stupidity to think that we could recreate a Mario <laughs> as two people that had never done character action games before. And so we started working on Crash. And Mark was a huge part of the success of Crash Bandicoot, uh, beyond any shadow of a doubt. And again, it, a lot of it was his experience with Sonic beforehand. Sonic 2, I think, was the one uh, that he worked on. I get the feeling that, that Mark pro- then was... Because I've had the pleasure of meeting him a few times. I want to get him in here for this show. You but, need to get him in here. Uh, I get the feeling he was probably exactly the same back then as he is now, meaning clearly brilliant, but uh, kind of shy. Yeah. Is that I, fair? It, was he, was he, how, was he, uh, how was young Mark Cerny? The beauty of the game industry is that people, and this was me too, I don't look like this now, but I was this kid when I was younger. People that didn't have the, uh, the social stamina, yeah. so to speak, or didn't quite, had an opportunity to connect with, I think, the computer in a way that they couldn't with humanity. And we all did these things. And if you, look at the, if you look at the game business, especially back then, before it was cool, right? Before it was making a lot of money. Sure, when, yeah. it was, when it was, everybody was unique. And Mark is unique. Andy's unique. I was unique. Um, the industry is built on, uh, you know, very diverse backgrounds and very interesting people. Um, we've all grown up. But we're all the individuals we were back then when we chose to stick ourselves in a garage or a basement as opposed to be out in the social world. Because that's what it was, that's what it required. Um, so Mark is a genius and an incredibly good friend. Um, along with a lot of people in the game business, he may not necessarily be uh, an, you know, a, a public speaker, but he's an amazing person. I think a lot of us that aren't, don't just make games but just play games can, can relate to that. And Absolutely. 100%, I, I know. And games, I br- the creation of games and also playing games brings a lot of joy to a lot of people that haven't had the opportunity necessarily where they live, who they are, yeah. to feel comfortable with themselves. And who I am today uh, came from games giving me the opportunity to feel like I had uh, a reason to be around and I wasn't the person that other kids in school were teaching me I was when I was in my early, uh, my young era. Right. Um, I blossomed because of video games. Uh, it, it's been a fantastic outlet for a lot of people. Uh, was Crash the game, as, you know, I've, I've already heard, your story's already amazing of <laughs> Trip Hawkins and getting out to Universal and making deals with EA at such a young age. W- was, uh, was Crash the, the life changer? Or oh, absolutely. You, yeah. I mean, we were... We sold out of 48,000, 50,000, EA would know the exact number of rings of power. Uh, you know, there weren't that many 3DO units. I think we sold under 100,000, maybe 100,000 copies of Way of the Warrior. Yeah. We sold 9 million copies of Crash. And the budget on that game was $2 million. You could make a game for $2 million back then that could be the number one selling game of the year. Yeah. Uh, you can't, you can do it if you're lucky now, but, you know, you can't compete with Grand Theft Auto at over $250 million or Call of Duty right. or, or Battlefield. These games are expensive. Uh, what do you, so I, of course, have to ask you, have you seen, what do you think of the, uh, the remaster of the, of the Crash trilogy that Vicarious and Activision are doing? It, you know, it's been interesting watching Crash since Naughty Dog left Crash. Uh, and I was still at Naughty Dog for 
uh, five years after Crash Bandicoot went off and started yeah. showing up on Xbox and <laughs> the various parties dealt with him. Um, I have not played the game. And after 30 years of watching people review games through screenshots, trailers, and other things, I won't do that. I, I think Crash has a place in history, especially in games. And I think he deserves a chance to get a remake that treats him right and right. creates what it is uh, that, you know, that, that makes people love him. The, the thing about games in the 90s is we tend to look back on them fondly as we do arcade games from the 80s. Sure. But developers have learned a lot yeah, we've, since we've then. we've moved forward. And games are very different. Yes. So I haven't played the games. I will not judge them until I play them, and I will play them. But Touch Launch has kept me busy. Sure. Um, I think people will find that those games were harder than they remember, <laughs> not as balanced as they remember, and probably not as forgiving and, and perhaps not as fun as modern games are, just because developers have become much better at what they do in the, in the 20 years since, since Crash launched. Um, having said that, if you have that memory... I think it's probably an amazing game to play, and I look forward to playing it. How about uh, Jack and Daxter now? That's, that's, that was the next big thing for you guys at Naughty Dog after Crash, and it turns into, that's another big hit as well, millions yep. of copies. Yep. What's the origin story on Jack and Daxter? Well, we had signed a three-project deal, as you said, with Universal. They owned Crash. Uh, Naughty Dog and Universal were not getting along horribly well at that point. Our relationship with Sony was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, to this day, obviously, Naughty Dog's relationship with Sony is incredible. We were still independent. And we, we were giving dollars of every Crash game we made to Universal. The Universal, for the most part, wasn't doing anything. Mark had left, so we didn't even have the advantage of Mark. Mark was consulting with us, still a big part of the games. But even that wasn't coming from Universal. Right. So there was really no justification financially for us to continue to work with Crash. Also, Crash was created for PS1. PS2 had a lot more power. And there were things we wanted to do that we felt we couldn't do with Crash because it had been created uh, for a console that didn't have the capabilities we needed. So everything just worked together to create the opportunity for us to start from scratch. And what I would say about Jack is that we set out with Crash to make a cartoon game that had a story and utterly failed to get the story in based on time, budget, Technical, technical yeah. reasons, everything else. We couldn't get it into Crash. There was no story. Um, more and more as you go with Cortex talking, but we were starting the art. It didn't really exist. Jack and Daxter is the middle. Jack and Daxter is the point at which you could start mixing story and game. And we started hiring people from the animation business into the game business. Uh, we started using professional voice actors at a higher level. We had writers that sole yeah. job was to write. We started doing the things you need to do to tell a good story. The goal all along, though we didn't know what the game would be, was basically Uncharted. Right? That's where we wanted to go. And so Jack and Dexter, in many ways, is the in-between. We hmm. were going from an industry that Kitty Games and the Mario and Sonics of the world were doing really well to when Jack 2 or Jack 1 came out, so did Grand Theft Auto. World changed. Yeah. Eight year olds were telling us, yeah, this is a great game, but you know, it's probably for my little brother. I would rather play Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> so the world was going to the world it is today, where the average gamer is well into their 30s, uh, you know, and it's a much more mature business. And Jack was kind of that middle game, but it taught us everything that Naughty Dog needed to then succeed in the modern era with the story games that they do. Fundamentally, they're all basically the same game that's <laughs> progressed over 20 years to the masterpieces that Naughty Dog is creating without me. I had 
nothing to do with the Uncharted's or. It's or a, I never thought about it that way. That's a really interesting way to to look at the. the it's like a first-person shooter company going from Doom to Quake to you know slowly but surely pushing forward right. in the first-person shooter realm. Hmm. They're all related in the same way, and the fundamentals from Quake or the fundamentals from Doom kind of lead forward. And maybe in a similar way, Doom was first, so everyone remembers it fondly yes. as they do Crash. Quake was that middle where. You know, it, it, you were progressing with the first-person shooter, but you weren't quite at the modern first-person shooter yeah. in the same way that Jack was the middle. And now we have these Half blockbuster, one, yeah. yeah, like unbelievably <laughs> large things going on. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of how the game business works. I guess uh, before I move on, I, I should stop and ask you. I didn't think to write this down, but it occurs to me. Well, when did when and how did you find out about uh, cr- the crash? It's not even an Easter egg because you can't avoid it. About Crash's appearance in Uncharted Four, I think when the public learned, I probably played it. I would have learned from someone like IGN. (laughs) I no, I I, you know I have my jobs and I'm not at Naughty Dog anymore. Uh, My relationship with Naughty Dog is good. I go back periodically. Um, but there would have been no reason for them to tell me. So I, I don't remember. But so you I, just saw it on YouTube I or something? I probably saw it on YouTube. I mean, I certainly <laughs> didn't find about the crash relaunches until it kind of... I, I, yeah. I actually knew a little before it was public, but coincidentally, not because anyone sought me out. I, that's the way it should be. What would you think of that scene when you, when, you see, uh, when you see Nathan Drake sitting there on the, at a, on the couch? It's so real. His wife? It's great, isn't it? It's the modern Naughty Dog <laughs> playing the antique Naughty Dog. But again, what, what Nathan doesn't understand is... This is basically the game that led to you. <laughs> that's, you exist that's so because good. of this game. That's so good. Uh, so when Jack and Daxter takes off, do you guys feel like you can do no wrong at that point? Because you're on a hell of a roll. I mean, it's just million copies after, you know, just millions and millions of copies at that point. Are you just walking on air at that point? You know, no. And actually, uh, we sold Naughty Dog right as Jack was kind of coming out right into the Jack launch. And part of that was we had the number one franchise on the planet for PlayStation. And we were afraid that we would not be able to repeat that success. So we had a lot of doubt. Game making is hard. Every game's the game that's going to break you. Right. And I I don't... You're only as good as your last game. And I'm not at Naughty Dog now, but I do hear, you know, every game they make, they go certain amount into it and they're like... This isn't working. It's not coming together like we expect it to come together. Every game, everyone does. And there's that moment where you buckle down, work incredibly hard, and they manage to keep pulling it off with 100% accuracy. But it is a frightening business when you're in it. And as the games get bigger, it gets harder and harder to steer them. And the cost of not pulling it off gets higher and higher. Because the price of failure goes higher and higher. So it it is a nerve-wracking business to be in. And I, I believed in Jack to be sure. Um, but I, there was never a moment where we thought we're unstoppable, we're always going to be on the top of this business. I don't think anyone in the game business thinks that. And if they do, they're about to be unseated. <laughs> uh, do, do you gain, when you, you sell, Naughty Dog's successful, you sell to Sony, do you, do you amass, like, do, is that a time of you attain some wealth at that point? Or is it, or is you know, because the, the industry is still fairly young. Is it still a very sort of just blue-collar, day-to-day life at that point? No, life changed. Andy and I had done, you know, as kids as old as we were, we had done quite well all along. We yeah. had money that our friends didn't have. Right. Um, Crash changed that. I mean, the checks that came in from Crash, like I said, it was a $2 million game. It sold 9 million copies at, call it, 35 40 bucks on the shelf right average. It was a little cheaper back then, and yeah. there was discounts and stuff. It, it, was a, it generated a massive amount of money, 
and we were an independent. So the checks started coming back That's in. That's the best. So I've been very lucky. Andy and I have been very successful. Um, so the money started coming in. Having said that, we always had a deadline. So there's a check coming in. It goes into the bank. And I don't even buy new clothes because right. Christmas is coming. And we're late for Crash 2 or Crash 3, <laughs> Crash Team Racing, uh, Jack and Daxter, Jack 2, Jack 3. I mean, there was literally no time off. And that's what eventually led me to say, listen, I, I'm not a multidimensional person. I'm a game maker. This is what I do. It's what I've done since I was a teenager. Yeah. And I haven't seen the world. And I never get out of the office. And I need, personally, and not everyone feels this way, but I need to be a fuller person. And I need to experience the world. And that's what got me that, along with the fear that we wouldn't keep repeating our success. That's what got me to think about transitioning Naughty Dog into a, into a place where I could eventually walk away. And also where it had the resources it needed to keep competing at the absolute top level. And Sony has been incredible to Naughty Dog, always giving them the, the assets that they need to compete. Most people don't realize, but quite often a game is won because a game got more budget. It, it's bigger, it's badder, it's cooler because it got more budget. Or time, right? Or time. Or both. I guess they're or one and the yeah, same, they're right? they're all the same, right? They're somewhat fungible. Uh, so, you know, had it not been for that happening at any given time, Naughty Dog could have, could have cratered, but Sony has been incredibly good to Naughty Dog. So... Was the decision to sell to Sony an easy one for you, no. or did you did you and Andy agonize over it for a while? No, we, we definitely agonized over it. I do remember the first time it popped into my head. We were in Rapongi, and we were in a bar, and uh, Kelly Flock was there, as were two journalists from Game Informer who are very, very close friends, the Andys, Andy McNamara <laughs> and Andy Ryan. Reiner, yeah. And uh, Kelly said, you guys are at the top of the world, uh, Crash is the number one franchise out there, Tomb Raider and Gran Turismo being competitors. But by that time, Tomb Raider had not changed much, and Gran Turismo came out so infrequently that we were a bigger unit seller and dollar seller because we were more consistent. You're the biggest in the world. You're never going to be bigger than the biggest in the world. Uh, And he basically gave the speech that I just gave about always being on the edge. You, You guys should think about Safe Harbor. And Andy and Andy from Game Informer stood up (laughs) and started yelling at Kelly, this, Naughty Dog's a developer that cares about the game. We did. Naughty Dog's a developer that's about the game first. We were. Naughty Dog's a developer that's in it for the art. Absolutely. Naughty Dog doesn't need Safe Harbor. And I remember thinking, <laughs> that may not be right. So we, Andy and I started talking when we sobered up, and it made sense. Our relationship with Sony was already so intertwined and magical and amazing that certainty for both parties made a lot of sense. And I think my personal life story aside, it was the right decision for Naughty Dog. Look where Naughty Dog is today. And as an independent, I don't think Naughty Dog could have done that. I don't think you'd have these games. And you had had, had some pretty good leverage at that point, too. (laughs) Well, that's the whole point, right? Selling high, right? You always want to sell high. That was Kelly's Kelly's point. And it was well well taken by Andy and I. So you're... uh, before leaving Naughty Dog, your mic drop moment was a 2004 speech at the Dice Summit, which happens every year. It's a developer conference that criticized publishers for not recognizing and promoting talent responsible for creating games. How I don't want to revisit that, but I, what I what I am curious to ask you is: it's now 2016, 12 years later, how do you think the industry is doing? Much better for a lot of reasons. That was a very dark moment. Uh, People don't remember this or realize this, especially younger gamers, but you would go to an industry event 
and it would say, uh, producer, name a publisher, and not the name of the person as they were giving a presentation because the, the publisher at that time, the publishers in general, were seeking to make the publisher name mean something in the business right. and trying to push out uh, the developers because leverage, as you said, sure. right? A big developer with a big name can walk in and say, maybe I'll go to another publisher, right? So it, it was a moment at which the industry was maturing and there was a push-pull between the publishers and developers and developers were getting manhandled um, and it didn't feel good. And I thought as a developer that had leverage, it was, a, it was the right time for me to stand up and say, look, other developers out there that don't have my leverage, they're not even mentioned. Their names aren't on the front of the boxes. They're, uh, you know, if they get, if, sometimes they get acquired out of desperation, they lose the team name immediately. It becomes Publisher North, right. Publisher Houston, whatever it was that they became. And it didn't feel right. And I was living in L.A., and by that time had uh, many friends in the industry, in the Hollywood industry, and watched as they were appreciated for the art they were creating. And I know, fundamentally, it's art. Video games I, are absolutely. art. And the artist, does, the artist is as important as the mechanics of the gameplay. And I wanted the business to be more like Hollywood that appreciated art and a lot less like uh, a toy business that was boxing <laughs> and selling toys that were only IP-based, right. right? And there was no one behind those things. And we could go in either direction. I would also mention that at the time, there was a debate whether video games were art. And it was very important because people were saying video games violence was killing people. And as an art, it's a protected speech. As a toy, it's not. <laughs> so there were a lot of things going on that drove me to stand up and give that speech. In retrospect, not necessarily the smartest thing to do as a career move. But I felt very strongly about it. And to this day, much of what I do in the industry is pro-developer. There's a lot of things that changed. The publishers came around in the long run. Developers, because they're artists, their leverage never went away. They were always going to be the important part. The spark that makes these games inside the publisher was never going to go anywhere. So in the long run, publishers changed. And also, digital distribution allowed developers to say, Direct access. The hell with you. I'm going straight yeah. to the consumer. So things have changed, and I think they're significantly better now than they were back then. I'd say it's even fixed to that point. But at that moment... The industry seemed to be in a pivotal point. And I remember I convened a, a dinner of, I think we figured out that 40 or 50% of sales came from the 14 developers around the table wow. that year, um, at least on the console business. Meeting uh, of the five, five heads of the exactly. five families kind of and thing. Everyone agreed. But again, everyone has a different personality in the game industry, and no one really wanted to make a stink out of it. And I was like, you know what? I'll make the stink. I'll make the stink. Well, so we did. So you just said you feel like things are, are good. You, you used the word fixed, even. But I'll go ahead and ask you, though. Do you think game developers should unionize? And that's, a, that's a complex question to unfold, but I can, I mean, I can see the, the passion you have about this topic. And it's been something that's been talked about. You were just were making the Hollywood comparisons. Should game developers unionize? That's a really hard question, and I don't think I, I can totally answer it. I know, totally putting you on the we spot. We <laughs> actually looked at that as part of this. We talked to SAG, the Directors Guild, um, at the time. Uh, it's, it's difficult because our industry operates in a very different way than Hollywood does, so their unions didn't make sense. And starting a new union is difficult because a new union has no power. Right. Um, there is a world in which it could have unionized. Um, didn't happen. Don't think it's necessary now. Digital distribution, I think, is a, is a big pro for the artist. 
So you did, uh, shortly after that speech, you did leave Naughty Dog in 2004. And at that point, you're uh, 34 years old. You're a really young guy. I'm, put it this way. I mean, I'm 36. And so by, by 34, you've really done all that stuff. Yeah, uh, so, and I was burnt out. And, and, yeah, in fact, you'd, you'd spent uh, quite literally half your life at, at Naughty Dog with Andy and with, with the team there. So you kind of alluded to it earlier, but did, did you just kind of want to see what, what else was out there? I wanted to walk the earth. I yeah. wanted to get out of the office. I mean... <laughs> Games would end, and by that time, games had gotten to be two years. Games would end, I would walk out, be done, go on a press tour, yeah. and find out that my clothes had gone out of fashion, or that they had holes that I hadn't noticed, <laughs> because I was just not getting out of the office. Right. In, nine, in the late 90s, there were a couple of years where Andy never left the office. Never, not never left the office. He was in the office every day, including weekends and holidays, wow. for 364, 365 days. Um, there was one year where I made that, and the other year, I had one day out because I was so deathly ill, I couldn't manage to get myself into work. And that, it wasn't much of a life. And again, again, I'll, there are still hard deadlines and people are working incredibly hard. But that has also changed as games have gotten bigger. Uh, and digital distribution has, in many ways, deprioritized Christmas, which Christmas was a nightmare because everything came out at Christmas. If you didn't come out at Christmas, your sales were in a hole. And when games were in between one year and two year, you had to decide, do I cram into a year which is going to be more profitable because you can do another game after that, or do I slip to two years, in which case I'm maybe getting a bigger game, but I'm spending Got more time sell on... twice as many copies. Exactly. And that transition was a brutal period in the business. Um, and I, you know, I, like I said, I just needed to walk the earth. And I did for a few years. So uh, what did you think of Uncharted since when it, when it first came out? When, when you first played Uncharted, and you, just, you, you didn't fan, have anything to do fantastic. with it. What did like, you think of it? It, it was fantastic. And it, there were moments where I was like, yes, they did. Yes, it works. All of the things that, that we had talked about, not to take credit away from the team, because 100% of that game is not me. Right. right? I, was, I was out by that time. But the concepts and what he, we had been talking to as a business, um, you know, it was all there. And then at the same time, it was at a quality level and a polished level that Naughty Dog never achieved prior uh, to that moment. So it was, it was a fantastic game. Uh, how... How proud are you of the fact that, I mean, well, not a fact. I, I mean, I think it's a pretty clear cut that uh, you built a company that it would be on the modern day Mount Rushmore of game developers. I mean, if you were to put, carve four, four logos into a mountain somewhere, I mean, it, Naughty Dog's on that short list. I mean, could, you, this is a thing you started when you were a teenager. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing to think back at, you know, to think back to. I think. Look, Naughty Dog soared to heights, maybe not, not by unit sales because things have changed a little, but soared to heights with Uncharted and Last of Us that we never reached in terms of quality and a lot of other things when I was there. Easily, Naughty Dog could have disappeared if they didn't have the talent. So I take credit for building it, and I take credit for being there for the beginning and everything we did together. But the credit for all of those games goes to the team that's there now. Um, for two years, Andy and I transitioned out of Naughty Dog knowing we were leaving after having announced we were going to leave and having chosen successors. And it was very important to us that Naughty Dog survive and Naughty Dog go farther uh, and that Sony get their money's worth for having treated Andy and I so well and right. having purchased the company uh, that they got their money back, which they have now. So I don't have to feel... <laughs> at this point, I don't have to feel no bad about guilt. it, right? They got, they got a fair deal on that one. Um, but we spent a lot of time and energy doing it. And it was hard, that transition. And most people don't realize this, but probably the year or two when after Andy and I left and before Uncharted came out, 
That was probably the darkest days at Naughty Dog. And the fact that they survived that, because there was this discord, they didn't have my, my leadership and the way that I had behaved. It all changed. And there was this new person, Evan, in charge. Yeah. And there was a new head of programming in charge, not Andy. And things were difficult in that transition. And there is a world in which Naughty Dog could have disappeared. And it didn't. And I think that that's a tribute to the people running it to this day. And everything that they've succeeded uh, with since then is obviously their talent. So you walked the earth. You did, uh, you did a, little, a little writing, uh, a little, some other Comics, projects. Yeah, I did a but, lot of stuff. Uh, then you decide to join THQ in 2012 at a point when uh, you know, high, things were already looking kind of grim. For THQ in 2012. To put it mildly, the stock uh, was down 98% from its high. So yeah, a little grim. Uh, <laughs> did, you have, did you have any hope that the company could be saved at yes, that point? Yes, absolutely. Um, I had done a lot of consulting. I had been involved in a couple acquisitions that private equity companies were doing uh, in the game space. I had been involved in a, uh, an attempt at a buyout that had it happened, um, you know, would have put me in a senior leadership business in one of the still around major publishers. Uh, it hadn't come together. And all the time, we were looking at all the companies in the industry, and THQ uh, was this company that was going through a really hard time. So private equity was looking at it. Other buyers were looking at it. Um, but THQ thought it could pull itself out. And I remember uh, one of the private equity companies and one of my business partners went into THQ at one point and said, look, you guys are in trouble. Let us come in. We'll inject money. We'll turn this around. And the answer was, we have this uh, U-Draw thing coming out, and it's going to be our biggest year Christmas ever. That was not the biggest Christmas ever, to put it mildly. Um, that device put them in really bad straits. And at that point, it was beyond private equity. Private equity doesn't like things that are, the plane is headed to the ground, yeah. fuel is running out, and it's clear what's going to happen. Um, but there are groups uh, that will turn those companies around in bankruptcy. Things have to get really bad with a company to the point where everybody who's invested in the business understands how bad they are and is willing to take major haircuts to give an opportunity for it to turn around. And basically in these things, you're, the plane has to be heading to the ground and get right to the point at which it's going to hit, yeah. touch its wheels, <laughs> and then take off again. And that's a game that I had never played before. But I thought, look, I've had multiple startups. I had sold a startup in between this to Fox uh, and worked for MySpace for a while. Yeah. Startups are great. Some of them succeed. Some of them fail. That's okay. That's part of startups. This is something could easily fail. I'll jump in. I'll see how it works. Didn't spend enough time thinking about the fact that it was a public company, not a startup. And everything you do is immediately in the news. So walked in uh, and found out that things were not as I thought they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we had been told. And we were headed down faster than we thought with less fuel in the tanks and everything else. Um, I had two goals with THQ. One was to save a fantastic company with incredible people working there. The other one was, if that failed, save the teams. Because the mid-sized team was falling away. There weren't that many teams that could step up and become big-sized teams. And THQ had a bunch of them. And if a volition had disappeared, that's a crime against humanity, in a sense. You're not going to replace them. Big teams like that are not made very... He's a relic. I mean, Vigil, there were tons of them. They were... Really good. And there were other teams like Crytek that were heavily invested in content for THQ that would have also been negatively impacted. Um, So save the teams. We didn't manage to save the company. It was close. 
closer than most people realize, but we didn't manage to save the company. We did save all of the teams. And a lot of those teams are now working with Oculus and with us on VR because of the relationship that I built with them and, and developer first. It's always been developer first for me. So I knew going in it was a long shot. It was still a very painful process. And after that, I had a baby, took some time, again, walked the earth again. Yeah. Right? Did you, so did you, you did, you went in thinking that maybe you could save this, but did you figure out worse, it's, it's a cool learning experience for your career to make? Yeah, like a make, startup, right? Yeah. If startups fail, it's okay. Everybody understands that going in, and they say, I learned a lot. Um, and I did learn a lot, and meet incredible people, and net-net, it's a positive. But at the time, it was brutal. It was you, brutal. So you mentioned a few minutes ago, you mentioned you draw because that was literally the, the next question on my list. Uh, was that, do you, do you feel like that big bet that THQ placed on you draw was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back? There were, you know, we did forensic science when we went in to try to figure out where the problems were and what had happened to create the, the, the problem. I don't think this is the right venue for it, but there were a bunch of things that were done. Clearly, one of the biggest mistakes was uh, the Xbox and PlayStation versions of UDRAW because hardware is expensive. It sat in warehouses. Yeah. And I remember it took 40 Mack trucks, so 40 18-wheelers, to move just the Nintendo, uh, wow. remaining Nintendo UDRAWs to Walmart to blow them out on Black Friday at $9.99. 40 trucks. So the amount of warehouse space, money you've dumped into these things, it was an incredible blow to a company that was already financially shaky. Uh, the, the THQ IPs were, of course, auctioned uh, off after that. You, you did succeed in that second goal you mentioned of, of saving the companies. Where were you hoping they'd each end up? Do you think they all sort of ended up in the right places? Well, the, the thing about the auction is there was a bidder. It was a private equity company that had put up what's called a stocking horse bid. And if the stocking horse had won... THQ would have remained together. Interesting. The judge had decided, rightfully, I think, wrong for me, wrong <laughs> for the company, right for business, right for the debtors that had invested in THQ, that instead of doing a, here's the stocking horse bid for the whole company, does anyone want to buy the whole company? In which case, the stocking horse would have won because no one wanted the whole company. Right. Instead, we'll allow the assets to be sold off. And when that decision was made, effectively, that decision was the end of THQ. Because the assets, someone could say, I don't want your marketing department. I have a marketing department. I don't want to lay those people off. I don't want that But I want volition. But I want volition. And you've put $27, $30 million into Saints Row 4, and I get that for whatever I bid for the company, plus all of the people working there, plus the IP, plus everything else. I'll buy $28 million of development for $23 million, which (laughs) I think is what volition went for. Yeah. Uh, That sounds like a pretty good deal, right? And so that's effectively what happened. And that beat the stalking horse in net, and everything d- disbanded. That night, and it was a night that went until, two, you know, I think 6, 7 a.m. in the morning, Oof. the auction in Delaware. Uh, that night, I didn't know if THQ was going to survive or not survive. All I cared was that the teams were happy and went the, to the right place. And they did, for the most part. Um, Vigil was one of the hardest, because they had just finished... Uh, the Darksiders 2 game. Yeah. And they hadn't started their new game yet. So you weren't buying IP in flight. 
And also, the Darksiders IP had been successful, but not wildly successful, so people didn't necessarily want to do a Darksiders 3, and they had started working on a game that ended up never coming out that, that no one was sure about. So that was the hardest company for us to find a home for. A decent number of them ended up at Crytek USA, and then, when that didn't work out, they are now Gunfire, yes. released yesterday, a game uh, that they worked on with us called Dead and Buried. They've also put out Kronos, one of our most successful titles. There you go. It all it's, comes back. It all comes back, right? And by saving the core of that team, Dave Adams and the core of that team, those games exist today. Those people are happy, and they're doing what they love. They're making games. That's so awesome. that's the success of THQ, uh, the time of THQ. So now we get to the, to the present day, uh, and that is Oculus. 2014, you joined Oculus as the head of content. Uh, did, uh, did the tech itself sell you on that role and that, the company fairly quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, Trying I, is believing. As is I said, not? THQ was like, it, it took the wind out of my sails. Coincidentally, my wife was pregnant. We had a, a baby. Um, and I thought, I'm, I'm just going to do the stay-at-home dad thing for a couple of months, loved it. Uh, as I was doing that um, and recuperating, uh, Brendan called me. Uh, I had known him, but also knew a lot of people who were working at Oculus. He said, you really have to come down and see this. And, All right, plenty of time. Sure, why not? Why not? I'll drive down to Irvine. So I drove down to Irvine, and I put it on my head, and this is why we got into games. You know, I said we started with Star Wars, and, uh, or I started with Star Wars. A lot of developers started with whatever their inspiration was to make universes, yeah. whether it was Star Wars or something more recently. The TV has always been this window that we've had to look through <laughs> and a distance. It may not be that today we have realized VR's potential. I would argue absolutely we have not. But as a designer and as a game maker, this is where we're going. This is the future. And the ability to create something of the depth of an Uncharted or, or whatever or a Grand Theft Auto and literally be in that world, touching it now with touch yeah. controllers. This is it. This is what I've been doing for 30 years is getting ready for this moment in the game business. So I was all in. It was easy. I was, just, I was all in. I mean, yeah, stuff like a, like Lucky's Tale, which you think, oh, a, a character platformer. What, what, what does that have to do with VR? But then you get in there, and it's like you're looking at a, like you're, you're a window into a, a Disney world right in front of your you face. You have to remember that all of this content is launch content. It's, yeah. it's first Generation year. one. And it's Generation one, not in a world in which there's been a uh, Rift 1, Rift 2, Rift 3. This is the Rift 4 more powerful. This is it for VR. This is the beginning for VR. Nobody knows what to do in VR. Every developer is, is going back to the basics. All that they've learned yeah. from TV and making games through TVs is all useful but not terribly useful. So all the A, AAA developers are A developers. A developers are B developers. <laughs> Everybody's dropped down, and they're all trying to struggle to figure out what to do. And in this first year, your inclination is get something out fast. Here's an idea that will work in VR that's already a genre that exists. Let's do it. Now what we're going to see, and this happens every time with technology like this, is people are going to say, now that I've built the thing that was obvious, I've learned what wasn't obvious. And the second and third generation of software, that's where VR is going to hit its stride. And people that right now are like, I like playing through a TV. It's great. Not that 2D games are going anywhere. They're going to be around forever. I'm not saying it's a replacement. But there will be something you absolutely fundamentally cannot do unless you're in VR that speaks to everybody. And this is going to be 
the future. Well, it's, Absolutely. It's almost, it's, it strikes me as almost an interesting full circle for you. Of It was kind of the Wild West when you and Andy first started making games as, as kids, effectively. Yep. This is the where third there, were, there basically were yep. no rules, and you said, okay, well, I can make ski craze, and that can be a game down a mountain. And now, same thing. Like the, in VR, the, the sort of rules of that haven't, are still being written. And the one that I didn't participate in but exists is the mobile business, which game makers said, I don't have a controller. What am I going to do with this thing? It's a tiny screen. People play for a few minutes. You know, it's got battery issues, all these other things. It'll never work as a game device. Sure enough, it does. But it wasn't until the second, third generation of game. In fact, one of the most successful first titles on mobile was Crash Team Racing. Someone said, well, it'll work, and we'll steer with the thing. <laughs> it wasn't what mobile devices were calling for, but it right. was what made sense to people who were starting there. It wasn't until the Angry Birds and all the other stuff came along. People really figured out, this is how gaming sings. This is how content sings on the mobile device. And the exact same thing's going to happen with VR. So you mentioned you know, that kind of Wild West. Everybody's still figuring it out. Uh, what, what's, what, is, what makes a good VR game to you? And secondarily, what, what's going to be that killer app that doesn't exist yet? So I get, this is the hardest question I get. What is the killer app? And I get asked it uh, by senior management, as senior as you can think, <laughs> at Facebook, and it scares the living daylights out of me because I've been around long enough and happen to have created one of the killer apps for a major platform launch and know that that was not our plan. We stumbled upon it. Yeah. And I can tell you that you know, Halo, whatever you call the killer app, the Angry Birds, they didn't say, oh, we're going to make the killer app, and this right. is obvious, this is the one. <laughs> Angry Birds was like... 49th, 50th game that they tried in mobile or something, if the story is true. Um, people, developers, try to do what they think is right. And at some point, somewhere, some developer will strike that brilliant first uh, hit on a game. The, the lightning on, strike. Right. And once that happens, every other developer goes, oh, and this, and another developer goes, what you did, but that, but this other thing, and we'll put that together, and that's how Like Half-Life building on Doom and Quake. Right. It needs the spark, and yeah. I don't think we've had the spark yet, to be honest. That's not to say if you buy VR today, there's not great experiences, sure. and you're going to have a great amount of time. Our reviews are excellent, the consumers love it, but in a fair perspective, from a thousand feet, we still don't know what that spark in VR is. And honestly... We don't know it in games, but we really don't know it outside of games. And a big part of VR is going to be social, education, architecture, medicine, all of these other things. So I, this is a frontier. This is a massive frontier. And we're just starting out on that. And we haven't yet had that guiding light. There are little nuances of it. There are things that developers are now copying off of each other. But no one struck that chord where everyone goes, yes, that's, that's the... First time somebody got it right, and then things explode and blossom into uh, incredible. And being there, watching this happen, and being at the center of the universe, watching all the developers work on this stuff, is fantastic. I could not be happier watching all of them experiment, and they love it. Developers love VR because it's it is that it's new to them they got too, it, right? And that's, yes. ex- that's creatively exciting. And it's the right? reason they got into it. And the game industry has become very mature and has become very. Uh, repetitive in a lot of ways for especially developers that are making the biggest games yeah so this is this is their childhood again this is their their entry into the first time that they made games and it's it's been amazing watching the smiles on the face of people that are i've known for 30 years are so jaded you know having played everything and this is their business so they look at it like a business uh 
They tear everything. I can't play a game without saying, ooh, they, that shader, that's, you know, well, this they did. That was a smart thing. I'm always analyzing. And no matter what game you show a game developer at the top of their game, the big game developers, they're always analyzing and picking it apart. And they can't, in, how in many ways, work. they can't enjoy it as, as a consumer does. Right. VR, you get that baby smile again. <laughs> I put it on developers' heads, and they're just like... And they stop talking about shaders and polygon counts and collision systems and everything else that's, you know, so important in making a game. And they start talking about being there. And they start talking about, you know, touching people and the things that actually matter to them. And it's, it's just been fantastic watching that. So uh, it's a perfect segue. Uh, on last month's episode, I had uh, Jack McCauley in here, the co- one of the co-founders of Oculus. You guys didn't overlap. No, we didn't. But... Uh, in, when he was in here in that seat, he told me a thing that you just touched on. He thinks gaming might not even be the primary future of VR. You, th- yeah. you think? Uh, what do you think of that? I don't know Jack, and we didn't overlap. Um, he has his, he has opinions. I happen to think he's probably right in that opinion. But I, I not to play off what Jack said. Um, for everyone has different opinions about VR. He, I read his some of what he had said, and his opinion for why games is not the ultimate thing is not my reason for coming to the same conclusion. Right, right. I, I believe that when the iPhone first came out, when mobile devices first came out, nobody could have predicted Uber. Nobody could have predicted Airbnb. Uh, you know, when the Internet first came out, no one predicted Facebook. Sure. Right? It took a while to get there. There's no way we can predict what the eventual strength of VR is. But if you believe in VR, you believe it's the last computing platform. Well, what does that mean? Well, <laughs> The, you know, there have been various computing platforms that have come over time, and all of them have opened up opportunities that the previous computing platform has not. Mobile, certainly, with GPS and oh, yeah. being in your pocket and everything else. That would be an example. The thing about VR is, if VR really works, it is a virtual reality. So any further computing medium that we can imagine, we could simulate right, in VR. Yeah. So it's this weird moment at which... If VR works and becomes the holodeck, and I'm not suggesting we're anywhere near that (laughs) or that it's even possible, but as it moves slowly but surely from your hands aren't in there to your hands are in there to the screens allow depth of field and other things and and become lighter and become smaller and all of these things happen, we can simulate anything. And because of that, it is unbounded in opportunity, completely and utterly unbounded in opportunity. And if you think of what humanity does, Gaming's a big part of it, bigger every year, but it's a small part of what humanity does, right? True. It, there's so much out there. And so when you give humanity this tool, it's easy to say games absolutely are not the end state of VR. But it's also probably right to say it's a big part of VR because games are a big part of every, inter- every computer platform we've had to date. Do you ever get the itch to make games yourself again? To All get the back time. in there? All the time? And then I watch the... Uh, you know, the, the last few months of any game development cycle <laughs> and remind myself why it's nice to be able to walk in, make a couple points, <laughs> dabble, and walk out. Uh, you're and, like, and uh, you're, like, you're like the uncle. You come in, you see the baby, you, 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 know, you play for a little while. My job, okay, you change the diaper My now. job is easy. <laughs> I work with the brilliant, hardworking uh, people who make me look good, but they're the ones doing the hard work, and they're the ones that are brilliant. Um, it, it's... It's something I think about. Would I be a good game developer anymore? Would I go back to it? I am very happy being uh, a producer and very happy being head of content and helping shepherd developers into what I think is 
uh, a big part of the future. The other thing I would say is developers that are working at this now, it's a small business. There's not a lot of units out there. Uh, Facebook and Oculus have been very clear all along that it is going to take a long time yeah. for this to hockey stick. Sure, I mean, the price, the price point is price that's point, just the reality. It takes a long time to put it on. It's not as comfortable as it eventually will be. It's not as high resolution as it eventually be. It doesn't have all the features it will eventually have. It, we haven't figured out the software yet. But I know some of these developers, many of which have been through many years of development, some of which went through the hell at THQ and other things like that, some of these early developers are going to become the next billion-dollar company, the next Rovio, the next Playdom, the next Playfish, the next Naughty Dog, the next, you know, this is the moment in time where the big players are focused on hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue and, and massive sales that can't currently be provided for in the VR business, yeah. where the small indies can get in and figure it out, and this is their ticket <laughs> to make the money that I made at Naughty Dog and to become successful and for them to create the Naughty Dogs. Not that some of them haven't already had incredible storied pasts and I'm not in any way uh, you know, downplaying what they've achieved, but VR is going to create a lot of billionaires. And some of the people I'm working with right now may be those people, and that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask you to name, to pick a favorite child here, what is the Oculus game you're most looking forward to? So I can't do that. It's like, <laughs> it is like picking a favorite child, and, and I absolutely can't do that. I, I value my relationship with these developers, and they wouldn't want to know that, oh, he didn't say our game. Does that mean we're going to be canceled? Are we doing poorly here? What's going um, I look forward eventually to stepping into an alternate universe and having an alternate life. And whether that looks like Grand Theft Auto or Skyrim yeah. or World of Warcraft or whatever... That speaks to me as a gamer. That's the game that I'm waiting for. Grand Theft Auto takes six years, five years to make in its latest Long iteration. Time. And I haven't been sending out dev kits for more than a year, on a year and a half, two years on Rift. So even if they had started and had the budget and had the knowledge, because <laughs> you can't just port those things over. They sure. have, VR has its own rules. We'd still be years away from it. But one day, and I'm, I'm actually surprised sitting here today, I don't think my young self would believe that I would see this in my life and probably not even when I'm old, I will be able to put on a headset and be utterly someone else, utterly somewhere else, and have that life. And I think that's fantastic. So that's the game I'm looking for. And we're not working on that right now because we're far away from it. I also look forward, personally, yeah. to moments in gaming. There have been many moments in my life. The first time I played Doom, I played for 18 hours straight. Kako Demon jumped out fell over in my chair, <laughs> actually was physically frightened and felt my heartbeat going. I'm with you on that. And that was a moment in time where I realized that games had, had touched me in a way that they hadn't before. There have been emotional moments since then, because back then games didn't really draw uh, love, joy, comedy. Okay, maybe comedy, but that's all now happening. Yeah. There are moments in time where you put something on or play something and you feel that this changes everything and I want to remember this moment. And I'm having a lot of those moments in VR. There are, there are times when things happen. Uh, there's a game called Arizona Sunshine, which launched recently, and it's a zombie game. And I've played millions of zombie games. I love all the zombie games. But they kick over a bus, and, you hear, and I heard it. I happened to be facing away from it. And I turned around, and a bus falls off a cliff. Don't want to ruin it for people, but it's a zombie thing, you know. <laughs> and zombies start jumping down. That moment could be in any zombie shooter. But in VR, those it's zombies are coming thing. for me. Yeah. And that bus just got kicked off a cliff. <laughs> and remembering moments like that, for me, is, is what 
has made 30 years in the game business so interesting because that, that, that couldn't have been done before now, right? And this is a small developer that pulled that off and they touched me. Like, that was, you can't, there's no other medium that could have given me that. And those, those moments come quite often with VR. And over time, I think those moments will build up to a business. So the uh, part of the way we'll start to get there, you've, you've uh, mentioned a couple times, but the Oculus Touch Controllers, which just long, launched this week as we record. It's uh, yes, been out for a little bit now. Uh, they really, I mean, I, I, I told you off air, I've played a couple of things so far with the Touch Controllers. They really change the experience a lot, don't they? They do. They do. Um, I've given well over 1,000 demos in VR. Uh, I actually know that number to be true because I, I kind of looked because there were scheduled yeah. moments where I get... Everybody who puts on a Rift headset looks around and is amazed and then looks at their hands. That's the next thing they do. And their hands aren't there. And Oculus wanted, when their hands did appear, for it to really be their hands uh, as best we could. We wanted to be able to do the things that you do with your hands because we believe in social, we believe in person-to-person interactions, and we want to be able to say, there's a match over there, right? <laughs> uh, toy box has a moment with a lighter, not a match, but I always go like that. There's a lighter right behind you, and people just go, and they pick up the lighter, and they don't even think yeah. that I had just pointed when I'm facing God knows what direction in the real world. <laughs> I just pointed behind them, and they heard my voice in front of them, so they believe I'm in front of them, and they know that I'm pointing to that lighter, and they just pick it up. And we wanted to get all of that right. And now that it's in there, The reviews, IGN, thank you, gave it a 9 out of 10. Um, The reviews are, okay, this is right. Like, this is what we need. It's not the end state. Touch will get usurped by the night. Like, this is how the business works. But for the foreseeable future, I think, for the next few years, touch is that state of the art. I think what you'll see is our competitors now going, okay, yeah, we do need to catch up to this. We might have been out earlier with our whatever our controller was, but this this is the bar. Do you th- ideally, would, would the touch controllers have launched with the Rift back in the spring? Ideally, yes, but the real world was we just weren't ready. We weren't ready with the hardware. We also weren't ready with the software. When Rift launched, we had the benefit of titles like uh, Project Cars, Elite Dangerous, uh, Dirt. These titles were AAA games that had always been around that kind of were calling for VR. So they were able to put themselves in VR, and people who really only care about bigger experiences... At least they had those right. games to jump in and say, there's something here for me to play. Would have loved to have more, but those games worked. And we tried as fast as we could to create uh, games based on things we knew. We knew we needed yeah. a first-person shooter. Yeah, yeah. Damage Core, High Voltage, yeah. knocked it out of the park with that game. Um, Eve Valkyrie was Eve, super fun. Eve Valkyrie, exactly, which was CCP doing it on their own. That wasn't actually anything that Oculus had, had pushed for, but CCP was like Space Fighter. That's what everyone wanted to do. I just got off stage with Ted uh, at, at a conference, uh, Insomniac, Ted Price from Insomniac, they were like character action game, edge of nowhere, let's do it. So we did as much as we could, but we also used a lot of knowledge in games that had already been out. There were very few new genres. If you can name one, I would say the climb is somewhere around there, uh, and we raced to get it out with GamePad because we wanted a new experience and the, the, the heights and everything, but we couldn't do that with Touch. We couldn't launch Touch because we didn't have the dev kits and we had nothing historic to say, well, take that old game <laughs> yeah. and just throw it in because we know how it works with Touch. Right. Nobody had ever done anything with this kind of uh, motion. And we didn't want to be demos only, small apps only. We love indies. We love small apps. They're great. That's where a lot of R&D happens. That's where a lot of new ideas come out of. Some of those indies will end up being Naughty Dogs or they'll end up being bigger. They're going to be massive. 
Having said that, some consumers really look to bigger, fuller, longer, thicker experiences. And we wanted bigger, fuller, longer, thicker experiences. And we needed the time to do that. So delaying touch also not only uh, created the ability to make better hardware, iterate, but it also gave us the ability to launch with better software. And now I feel that we're in a position where next year, the titles that have now had 18 months to come out as opposed to racing for touch right. launch, you know, the Wilson's Heart, which you said you had Yeah, played, I was talking about that beforehand. Arctica, Robo Recall, Lone Echo. Um, these titles start hitting and people go, yes, this is yes. Right? That's, that's what we're in this for. So would it have been nice? Of course it would have been nice. Did it, do I think we did the right thing? I think we did the right thing. So uh, before I let you go, I, I, as, as the sort of uh, Xbox guy around here, I've got to ask you, I mean, but a lot of, you know, there's no, they're not rumors, but just sort of speculation. There's a natural step point to point uh, thinking you can go through to think, well, Oculus has a relationship with Microsoft. You guys are bundling the Xbox One gamepad with, uh, with the Oculus now. Microsoft has the Project Scorpio console for, for next fall. They've said they're going to be do, able to do VR with that. Yep. Uh, is Would you see it, as, obviously you can't make any product announcements here in a, in a silly little interview, but would it, would it make sense for Facebook and Oculus to, especially you as the, the head of content on the gaming side, to, uh, to really grow that part of the company by, by sort of officially partnering up with, with, a, with a console? Yeah, we, we have clearly no announcements to make today. We have a very close relationship with Microsoft. We are on a Windows platform, right? So we're already yeah. basically You're, on their platform, right. on, on their OS. Um, they've made a lot of announcements uh, about VR. Um, I think what you'll see is every major company get into VR because although we've certainly been building a lot of hype and now we're in that reality phase where people are like, oh, it didn't do my taxes. Oh, it didn't cure my cancer. It's not a billion units in the first year. We're in that kind of plateau where everyone starts to doubt. I think all of the big players understand that it's going to tick back up. Yeah. And there will be relationships between those big players because they all have assets. Um, right now, we are absolutely laser focused on the touch launch that we just put out. And now I have the ability that I don't have to put 50 plus titles on the shelf in a day with <laughs> right. my team that's been working incredibly hard. Uh, it's amazing to get that many titles on a launch day. And keep in mind, we launched in, Mar- in March, and we also launched in November the Gear VR. So my team has been in nonstop launches. For me, the future, the next few years at least, is software. And we're just going to focus on that software. What can we do to make the hardware we've put out better and better and better? And the hardware stuff, the partnerships and everything else, it'll figure itself out. Right. Focus on the software. But if Phil Spencer calls, you'll pick up the phone. <laughs> he wouldn't be calling me, but I know Phil. He's great. I will always pick up the phone for Phil, yes. regardless. Uh, all right. So let's end with a softball. You've been working since you were a teenager at this point. You think you'll retire early? Or do you think you're just going to you just see yourself making games till, till the end? I mean, I, I know everybody's different, right? But you've really been, I mean, you've had a long career for such a, a young guy. Uh. I have retired multiple times, so I can actually answer this question as somebody who said, out of hell with it. I, I, I'm an emotional person. I have my moments of intense desire to do something, and I have moments where I want to see the world and do other things. Um, 
perhaps that's why I don't still run Naughty Dog, whereas there are developers that are still running the teams they run. They're more even-keeled than I am. Uh, right now, I am fully invested in VR, and I believe in VR. I don't know what my life's going to lead to. I, I wouldn't have predicted that I'd be here had you asked me four years ago, <laughs> right? But VR is day-to-day giving me the same adrenaline rush that addicted me to making games when I was 15. And I hadn't felt that adrenaline rush of seeing something work out, seeing something new, making those discoveries for a long time. Tough to and put so a price on that, right? Yeah. Until that stops happening, I'm, I'm here. And I would add, it's not going to stop happening anytime soon. VR has five-plus years of intense stepping on each other's discoveries and building up until we get to the point where we're dealing with sequels that are identical to the previous game. Well, Jason Rubin, thank you so much for coming by. Jason Rubin was the co-founder of Naughty Dog, the, let's, let's call you the uh, shepherd of the, the THQ flock, that <laughs> you help find good homes in the end, and the head of content at Oculus. Uh, the Oculus Touch controllers are out now. Of course, the, the Oculus Rift itself is available now. It's all available. It's all the available. software is, is, Game, is lots good of and getting great reviews. And it's going to continue to get better. 17 is going to be a major year for bigger titles. And 18, I, I mean, it's going to be awesome. Jason, thank you so much for coming in and uh, taking you know, well over an hour of your time to do this. I, I learned no a lot. It was uh, great to get to know you and your career. For uh, more from, from wonderful people like Jason, the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the gaming industry, be sure to tune in every month. These uh, do these things once a month. IGN Unfiltered, uh, this is the place. And for more on everything in the world of games, you're already in the right place right here at IGN.